morning, Grace Marietta. How are you guys doing? You're a lively bunch. I like it. And I could get used to this whole 1030 thing. So I'm over at Grace Snellville, and we start at 9. Uh, yeah, we, we, we get going early. And then by, you know, 1030, we're already doing our, our second one. So I kind of like this. You guys get to sleep in, have breakfast, um, roll on in, and, and yeah, gather together. So it's wonderful. So yes, once again, my name's Cameron on staff as at Grace Noble and also with the Grace family overseeing the residency program. And I want to tell you, I just love, I don't get to come to Grace Marietta often, but when I do, I just love the ethos of what's in the air here. Um, it's really, really cool. I have so much admiration and respect for the leadership of this church. And you guys are just in good hands. God's doing a good thing here. So we are, as Darrell mentioned, in the, and how cool is Darrell, by the way? Every time I'm around Darrell, I'm just like, yeah, I need to step it up a little bit. You have to get some fashion consultancy, right? It's been a real delight to get to know Darrell and Grant Allsbrook, right, um, that have both been residents here. Uh, I mean, just remarkable, remarkable leaders that are coming into the Grace family. We're, we're really blessed. So let's dive in. Um, as Darrell mentioned, we're in the book of Hosea. Uh, this series is called The Book of the Twelve. And the reason it's called the Book of the Twelve is because the minor prophets, as they are called, uh, are the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They finish out the canon of the Old Testament. They are called the minor prophets, not like baseball because they didn't make it to the major leagues. It's not like, oh, these dudes didn't make it up to the majors. They're the little guys. Not like that at all. Uh, it's minor because they are, it's just in size of the book. The 12 minor prophets are smaller books with a more concise and direct story and message, which makes them a little easier to summarize. Hence, I have the opportunity of trying to summarize an entire book of the Bible for you in about 20 minutes here. But if we go 30 or 40 or 50, you guys are fine, right? Because you only do one service here, so come on, guys. Um, no, we'll, we'll, keep it, we'll keep it brief and to the point. But Hosea is the first book of the 12. Uh, and and, and you may, maybe you know this, but in the minor prophets, they're not in chronological order here. So actually, so like Hosea actually lived 130 years before the prophet Daniel, but Daniel comes before chronologically in the Old Testament Bible here. So, but Hosea, a little bit of history about him. Um, if you may remember, uh, in the book of Kings, the, Israel was split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, right? The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah. And Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom. He actually is a contemporary of one of the of not minor prophets, Isaiah, who was lived alongside of him, who was a prophet to the southern kingdom and to Judah. But... Um, so about 200 years after the kingdom split, Hosea is a prophet to the northern kingdom, and his prophetic ministry was during the reign of one of the worst kings of Israel, Jeroboam II. And the nation was descending into chaos, into moral decay, and was impending judgment. And in 722, the Assyrians, and we'll look at this in a moment, because, because Israel was pursuing pleasure in politics instead of a relationship with Yahweh and God. 
Their political alliances turned on them, and the Assyrians did come in and conquer them and scatter the people. And Hosea saw all of this coming. And Hosea was issuing prophetic warnings saying, return to God. You've lost the knowledge of God, the knowledge of his ways. There is no knowledge in the land, and you cannot walk far from God without there being dire consequences. So Hosea is proclaiming this, but the people of God were not listening. So Hosea is called to waken the consciousness of a nation. Oh, that we would hear the words of the prophets today and that our God consciousness as a nation would be awakened as well, yeah? But Hosea is called to waken the consciousness of a nation, and boy, is he called to do it in the strangest of ways. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to actually read the whole first chapter together. It's not too, too long. It's 11 verses. Do you guys do here where the, if you don't have a Bible, somebody will give you a Bible thing? You don't do that here. Okay. We, we, we do that where I'm from. All right, if you don't have a Bible, sorry. Um, you can pull out your phone as long as you put it away um, when we're done reading, okay? And we're actually just going to start chapter 1, verse 2. And if you don't have it, no worries, just listen along. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go take for yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, Because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblam, and she conceived and bore him a son. The only thing worse than having to marry an adulterous woman is having to marry one whose name is Gomer, right? (laughs) She's from Mayberry, and half the room here don't even get that joke. That's okay, I'm going to leave that with you. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre of Jezreel and I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. Then the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah and I will save them not by bow, sword, or battle, but or by horse and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. And after she had weaned Lo-Rohamah, Gomer had another son. Then the Lord said, call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Wow, this is not going a good direction here. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited, and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Let's just pray at this point here. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is full of many wonderful and difficult things, and I pray today that we would have a heart, we would have ears to hear what you are saying through your word, your eternal, living, active word into our hearts and into our actual lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So chapters one through three here, and then I'm going to give you an overview of chapters four through 11, and then through the final book, and then we're going to bring it home and talk about what does this actually mean for us here, now, today. Sound good? 
Chapters one, we just heard it. Whoa, God tells this prophet, go marry an adulterous woman and have children with her and she will be unfaithful to you. What if that's your calling in life? What a strange thing. And God, um, like Hosea, he is like any other upstanding, righteous Jewish young man who is looking to marry a faithful bride and bring her home and into the family, this is not what he's looking for. And the people of those towns are like the people of our towns. They all up in everybody else's business. They know what's going on. Can you imagine when this upstanding man who's considered to have a prophetic uh, ministry brings home this woman. And now the context here says adulteress. The actual Hebrew word says one who fornicates. The implication is prostitution, but that's not explicitly clear here. What we do know is this woman had a reputation. So in comes Hosea with his new wife with a reputation, and the people are beginning to ask, like, what is he doing? Who would do such a thing? They're looking at her going, who does she think she is to marry into this? Who is she? And the answers are poignant and piercing and prophetic. Who is she? She is you and I. Because we have all been unfaithful in our relationship to God. Who would do such a thing? God. God would take to himself someone who was unfaithful and love them unconditionally. So this is the framework. This is where we start in this amazing book of Hosea. So chapter one is just telling the story of him taking to himself this wife and having these children who God names. He says, they, the children too will be prophetic pictures of how I feel toward Israel who has abandoned me, not my people, not my loved ones, not receiving of my mercy. And then in chapter two, they go on and tell all about the story of the adulterous departure. And it says of of Gomer, who's the picture of Israel, she has set in her heart that I will go after my other lovers. So right here, we're seeing this picture that God is establishing his relationship with Israel as a deep-hearted covenant relationship. God is not just mad because they broke the rules. God is broken because they broke his heart. What kind of God is this who is saying, I'm not just calling for some people who will do what I tell them to do, but who will be with me in relationship. But despite her unfaithfulness, God tells Hosea, go and forgive her, pay off her debts, and restore her into the marriage. So Hosea actually goes, and at this point, this is where the story implies prostitution, because uh, he went and had to pay money for her, which implies that to like a pimp. He had to buy her out of this and bring her back into the relationship. And these are these parallels that God is saying, as she has been unfaithful in this situation, you go and be faithful as you have been unfaithful to me and I will show you my faithfulness. And in chapter three, we see, so we see this. 
theme emerging here that when the consequences of sin, and our sin has consequences, doesn't it? When the consequences of sin are due, the promises of God are still faithful and true. And so in chapter three, he says, go show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. They were named not my people and not my loved ones, but they will be renamed my people, my loved ones. So in essence, God is saying, though Israel's sin is great and it is great, my love and grace and redemption are greater. Though our sins stack as high as Mount Everest, his high, his love is as higher than the heavens, higher than the stars of the sky. Though collectively the people of God's sins rush like a river, they flow into an infinite ocean of God's grace and mercy. He's always drawing us back to himself. So in the remainder of the book, chapters 4 through 11, we're looking at the causes and effects of Israel's departure of God. And the main theme here is that the lack of knowledge, and, and one of the most famous scriptures in all of the Bible is in four, chapter four, verse six, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. There is no faithfulness, no love, again, that's relationship covenant language, no acknowledgement of God. Now, the key word here, the Hebrew word for knowledge is yadah. And it doesn't imply intellect. It implies intimacy. This is not about knowing about God. It's about knowing him. Because when I have, I can have intellectual assent, intellectual knowledge of a lot of things that never touch me in an intimate way. But when I move from knowing about someone to knowing someone, by the way, this word here <laughs> was used in a very intimate ways. Adam laid with his wife Eve and knew her, and they produced the child. Same word. When a husband knew his wife, they produced offspring. This is deep intimate knowledge, and God is saying you're perishing because we don't have this intimate connection. God has always been about oneness and withness. And so he's saying, in our life, will we wrestle to know God? Like remember the story of Jacob. Jacob was a scoundrel. Jacob was deceitful. He was deceiving his family. He was a hustler. He was just looking out for himself. But there's this story where Jacob through the night, grew weary of himself and what he had to do, and he wrestled all night long to know God, and he said, I will not let you go until you bless me, and God did bless him, and God changed him, changed his name, he became Israel, and Jacob walked differently for the rest of his life because of an encounter with wrestling to know God intimately, and in the dark seasons of our walk, and they will come. Will we depart, will we turn, or will we wrestle with God to get greater knowing of who he is and how he's at work in our lives and how he has intimately created us to be? So at the end of chapter 11, we see this beautiful term, one of the most powerful um, parts of poetry of all the Bible. 
In chapter 11, it says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals and the burned incense to, to images. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts the child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. I just got a photo this morning of my new niece that entered our family, um, but she lives in Minnesota, and it will be a while, but the picture I got is of her little sister, who's two years old, holding her to her cheek. You all know the beauty and delight of holding a newborn baby to your cheek, right? God says, this is how I loved you. I lifted you with cords of human kindness to my cheek. I loved you, I nurtured you, but you were determined to walk away. Wow. Moving on to chapters 12 to 14. And now we see God's promise to them. Even though you've turned astray, even though you've departed from my ways, even though, and how about the Bible that just shows us the range of God's emotions? He's angry, he's hurt, he's sad, and then his sadness turns into deep compassion and resolve. I will bring you back. He even says, I will create a hedge of thorns that because you're so hell-bent on going a different way, I will hedge you in so that you have to turn around and come back to me. Oh, the relentless love of God. And he goes, he says in chapter 14, and I'll just go ahead and read this to you, and then we'll just break it all down. Return, O Israel, to me, the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive our sins. Receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. And then God says, I will heal their waywardness and love them freely. For my anger has turned away. I will be like the dew to Israel. He will blossom like a lily. Like a cedar of Lebanon, he will send down his roots. His young shoots will grow. His splendor will be like an olive tree. His fragrance like the cedar of Lebanon. Men will dwell again in his shade. He will flourish like the grain. He will blossom like a vine. And his fame will be like the wine from Lebanon. A beautiful picture. That is garden language. That in the beginning, God created us to be fruitful and to multiply. And Jesus comes along and says, I'm the vine, you're the branch. You can do no thing unless you remain in me, unless you are rooted in me. And if you're rooted in me, you will bear much fruit. And he says, the picture of who we're supposed to be is like a big, tall cedar that offers shade. It's really hot out there in the world today, guys. And Grace Marietta, you're called to be a shade for weary travelers. But first, we have to be formed into that. So, that's the lay of the land. You got it? That's the book of Hosea. There's going to be a quiz in a little bit. All right. What is, what is the main theme, and what does this mean for us? The main theme is stated very clearly right in chapter 1, and I'll read it to you again. Verse 2. Go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery 
in departing from the Lord. Here's the just implicit theme that runs throughout Hosea and through all of Scripture. God has created his people into covenant relationship with him. Say that with me. With him. Say it again. Not for him. There's a big difference. God has called us into relationship with him, not for him. And with him implies oneness. It implies intimacy. It implies knowing in the biblical sense like we talked about. With him. When we get caught up in living for him, it either ends up in like legalism or just apathetic laziness. It either ends up in this sort of smug self-righteousness, look how much I do for God. And then when we fall, and we always fall, we fall so hard because the idealized version of our idealized, the illusion of our idealized self comes into full picture and we're like, oh, The shame is crushing because we've been trying to reach God by doing things for him. Or we come into this sort of transactional laziness like, oh, my God account's a little low, and that's my emergency fund, you know? When I need him, I really need him, so I better go do some things for him, put a little money back in that bank account so I can trust him when the emergency comes. No? Relationship. And how does God in Hosea show us the picture of this covenant relationship, he gives us two stunning pictures. He gives us that of marriage, that of a husband and a bride, and he gives us that of parenthood. And like it or not, for better or for worse, there are no two relationships on this planet that have shaped you more than your family, your mother and father and your brothers and sisters, your family of origin, and your spouse if you're married. And even if you're not married yet, how much time do you spend thinking about how much does it actually shape you when you're thinking about when you will get married? No two relationships impact us more. I just spent the weekend with my family. Praise God. The old saying is true. Do you know why your family pushes your buttons? Because they installed them. They made you. Your mama hardwired you to be the way you are, whether you like it or not. And you know what? Some of you are just like her. You know it. Some of you are just like your dad. And some of you don't know it, but your spouse knows it. Oh, and they make you so mad. And they're like, hmm, you just like her. Just like her, right? Why do they push our buttons? Because they put those buttons in there. They know how to do it. And everything we do consciously or subconsciously is sometimes a reaction of the family in which we grew up in. Some of you are not anything like your family of origin because your family of origin hurt so deeply, you said, I will never be like that. But we've made that never be from a place of judgment. And so we suffer the consequences of bitterness and frustration and anger towards them. That's a tough place to be. And yet God is saying, God is showing us this picture of being in relationship with a father and a child. The next one is 
marriage. God portrays himself as a husband. This is unthinkable, really, to me, even today, but much less to these people thousands and thousands of years ago. The other gods in the land didn't have this kind of language. It wasn't a language of covenant and relationship. It was just a language of obedience and damnation if you didn't obey. And here comes God revealing himself to, the, to, to Israel saying, no, I love you like a lovesick lover. And even though you're unfaithful to me, I will pursue you. I will pursue you until you turn because it's what's, <clears throat> it's what's best for you. What a stunning picture. And of course, Hosea is not the only one who has this picture. It's all throughout the Old Testament where God is revealing himself as husband and lover. And then Jesus reveals himself doing his first miracle where? At a wedding. And Jesus also um, says of himself that he calls himself the bridegroom, right? And then later in Revelation, we see that the ultimate culmination of all things is that the people of God are caught up in a great wedding feast with Jesus the great bridegroom and his people adorned like a bride forever to live in this deep oneness, withness, connection, intimacy. This is God's heart for us. And if there's one thing we know, guys, marriage is hard, right? Some of y'all are like, oh, we in church. Am I supposed to? I mean, no, it's just blessed all the time, right? No, it's not. It's flipping hard. Yes, it is. You all know. You spent your engagement. Oh, that, they're the one. They're the one. They're the one. And then six months in, you're like, what have I done? What have we done? What have we done, right? Because it gets hard, and that's God's design. And we either turn from it from the hardness, we go away from it, we try to go around it, and we are the worst for it. Or we face it with God and go into it, and man, we are shaped, we are formed, we are transformed into better, beautiful, stronger people. And I say that as someone who's been married for 21 years now, this year, almost 22 years. And yes, it's been hard, and I can say by the grace of God, my marriage is a place of bounty and grace and beauty because we've decided with God we won't turn from the hard things. We'll walk together with him in and through them and be shaped and formed and become better by them. Amen? Amen. Amen. So he says, there's back there in chapter one, it's, a, it's adulterous. And the picture I want you to see there is the covenantal image here of marriage, of family. This is how God relates to us. He says, they have departed. The second main thing is we have to own that we all depart from the path God has for us. Why do we do it? St. Augustine was a theologian of the church who offered the church so many riches. I think one of his crown jewels is the idea of disordered desire. St. Augustine said, we depart from the ways of God because our God-given desires, we chase them to the wrong degree. We love the right things, but to the wrong degree, and that gets us in trouble. And we see that right from the beginning of our story. 
Here you are, naked and unashamed in paradise. As far as the eye can see, there's bounty and fruitfulness. Drink of desire and delight. Enjoy yourself. There's one thing that though you were created in my image, you are not me. You don't have the power to hold this. So don't put your hand to it. But what do we do? The one, it's just like, you know, you tell those children, all right, go to the, go to the driveway. Don't go into the street. Okay. You have that foot's just right over the line. I'm not in the road. I, you know. <laughs> right? What is it in us? We want to go to the edge. We want to just go beyond. And, and so we did touch and desire. And C.S. Lewis gives this really poignant and, uh, illustration. He said, can you imagine if there were an establishment that men would go to and pay money, and out came someone who stepped behind a red velvet curtain, and out on the stool came this, this um, plate of you know, shiny silver, and in it was a perfectly grilled ribeye. And the men in the room were like, oh, let me see the ribeye, let me see the ribeye. And then they start throwing dollar bills going, I want to see a peek of the ribeye. And the guy lifts up, oh, but he closes it back down. They're like, show me more, show me more. You would look at that and go, what is wrong? That is weird, right? You'd say, what is wrong? But you know what you wouldn't say? You wouldn't say food is wrong. You would say your desire for it is disordered. It's the right thing, but boy, you're reaching for it to the wrong degree. Something is disordered. And we live in a culture that is absolutely starved for intimacy. Genuine connection, genuine authenticity, Genuinely vulnerability, it's our deepest desire to know and be known and to be seen and to be loved despite our flaws and despite our weaknesses. But we don't know how to do that. So it's no wonder that as a culture, we've created platforms where we can show filtered plastic versions of a persona that's not real to try to get likes and followers instead of actually living in genuine relationship of authenticity and vulnerability that requires a whole lot of grace and compassion to move Right? It's why people have the addictions that they do, going online, looking at things that they should never look at because their desire, their God-given desire for oneness and witness and intimacy is very disordered. So we're looking for the right thing in the wrong places and to the wrong degree. And then that shames our very God-given desire, and we don't know what to do that and how to bring that back into our God-given covenantal relationships. And it's a broken cycle. So in closing here, God has called us into covenant relationship with him. And we have all departed, and we will continue to depart. What do we do when we do? Well, we must see it. Like when there's any rupture, we have to see it in the context of relationship. It's a rupture in the relationship, and whenever there's a rupture, there has to be a repair. Because there's a tearing. And you know the feeling 
when it's family or when it's your spouse or when it's just a good friend, you know what it is to be like in close proximity, to be around them, but to not be with them. It's painful, isn't it? It's painful, husbands and wives, when there's conflict in the home and there's tension in the home and the connection has been broken and you're just walking around one another, involved in one another's lives, doing all the things that are required, but there's not a withness. There's not a oneness because there was a rupture and there hasn't been a repair. And if we're going to live in oneness and witness and connectedness, we have to be people who repair our ruptures. And that takes repentance. And that takes humility. And that takes self-awareness and honesty. And the first stage of change, psychologists tell us, is denial. What problem? I don't have a problem. You have a problem. You're the problem. And when you fix you, then we'll be okay. (laughs) The next stage is consciousness. Okay. Maybe you're right. Maybe I have a problem. But I don't like that I have a problem. It's ambivalence. That's a powerful word, guys, ambivalence. It's where ambi is the prefix. Like we get our, like, ambidextrous, right hand, left hand, right? Valence means strong emotion. I have two strong emotions. I know that I need to change, but I don't like that I have to change. I don't want it to be this way, and I stay in this place of stuckness and frustration. And as long as we stay there, we will never see repair to our relationships with one another and with God. But when we return to God in repentance. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. We're going to begin to respond, and I just... Many of us, um, I don't know about you, but I grew up with a real strong reaction to the word repentance. It, it, it conjures people screaming in bullhorns, talking about judgment and damnation. But actually, the word repent in the New Testament is a beautiful word. The Greek word is metanoia. Meta, where we get our English word metamorphosis. The picture is a caterpillar that goes into its cocoon and comes out a new creation. Metanoia means perception, the way we see. So Jesus comes on the scene and it says, until you have a transformation in how you see, nothing will change. Think of the caterpillar. The caterpillar has this little segmented body, right? And when it walks along the earth and comes to an obstacle, it goes over the rock, its body conforms to the shape of the earth. But when it comes out of the cocoon, it is transformed. It flies above the contour of the earth. So Paul comes on the scene and says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your Minds, the way you see, the way you perceive, the way you understand. God is calling us into continual cycles of being transformed in the way we see him, see ourselves, and see one another. And that requires consistent wrestling like Jacob to see the one true living God, not 
not our image of who we would like for him to be because it's easier for us. But who are you really? Who are you shaping and forming me to be and who are you calling me to be? And having the humility to turn in repentance to repair the rupture of our relationship. So, and lastly, I just want to say, whoa, if this picture doesn't show us that no matter where we are, no matter what we've done, all we have to do is turn to his unending faithfulness and grace. What part of your heart this morning do you just need to bring back to the Father? What part of your heart feels disconnected that you just need to bring to the lover, bring to a faithful father that you can trust? You can't trust your earthly father, but you can trust him. What part of you needs healing, needs refreshing, needs restoration, needs reconciliation, needs repair? Let's turn to him. As Darrell was saying, not just in word, but in actuality. So I want to invite you as the worship team leads to maybe respond in a way that you don't typically respond. If that's whatever that looks like for you, this is about the time in the service where some of us start thinking, where's brunch and what are we going to do for lunch? And boy, I've got a big pile of laundry at the house that needs to be done. Monday's coming. Yeah. And wouldn't it be so much nicer if we went into whatever is in front of us next week with a witness with God. Because that's his promise to us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to hear, and we thank you for the opportunity to respond. Would you show us? Would you lead us? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you heal and restore us? We pray in Jesus.